Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen. My, go- my guest today is Chris Sagers, James A. Thomas Professor of Law at Cleveland State University, a member of the advisory board of the American Antitrust Institute, and a fellow at the Thurman Arnold Project at Yale Law School. Today, we will discuss his book, U.S. v. Apple, Competition in America. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Luce. Uh, let's begin by talking about why you wrote this book and what the main argument behind it and the driving force for writing it was. Yeah, okay, uh, good. Um, so the book on its surface is about one particular case, um, but it grew to be uh, about a whole lot more than that. And when the case first came out and I first started writing about it, uh, I didn't know it was going to be a book and I didn't know it was going to be uh, it was going to uh, uh, reach the scope that it ultimately did. So the case um, was famous in its day. Uh, it was um, a Justice Department antitrust lawsuit against the Apple Computer Corporation and several publishing companies um, <clears throat> for fixing the prices of electronic books. Uh, case, uh, the complaint was filed in 2012, went through uh um, uh, full trial on the merits and appeal to the Second Circuit um, in uh, 2013. The government pretty much won the whole way. Um, what was remarkable about it, uh, though, was was something kind of unexpected. Um, when the case was filed, when the complaint first became public, um, no nobody really knew too much about the case. Um, it was uh, the subject of a non-public investigation by the Justice Department, and people knew that it was going on. But I don't think very many people knew too many details. And then uh, when the complaint came out, uh, it was a little sensational. I mean, it was uh, it was kind of amazing uh, the range of conduct alleged in the complaint against um, a bunch of uh, uh, very sophisticated corporate executives, uh, the kind of people that we expect to understand antitrust rules um, and not to engage in this kind of conduct. And and one of those people was. Uh, was very sophisticated indeed. It was Steve Jobs of the the Apple um, organization. Um, but you know, to that extent, uh, it really just that just made it seem like an easy case. So to that extent, I suppose, um, in and of itself, the case might have seemed a little boring. Um, and to antitrust lawyers, surely it seemed like like a, a slam dunk. It was the kind of case where if the government could prove the facts that it alleged, um, it couldn't lose. So what was interesting about it, though, uh, and really, I've been fascinated by it ever since in the entire uh, seven years since the case was filed, was that uh, the case seemed easy to antitrust lawyers, um, but it did not seem easy uh, to a lot of other people. And in fact, um, people all across the political spectrum, really, um, were, were very critical of the Justice Department for filing this case. And so, you know, early on, it uh, occurred to me there, there has to be something interesting about the fact that the broader public is seeing uh, cases like this so differently than the antitrust bar. Uh, something is wrong. Somebody's uh, looking at it improperly, one or the other. Uh, and there has to be something interesting to say. So um, over time, it, it just, the case just seemed to uh, the book, uh, the subject rather, seemed to grow and grow. Became clear pretty pretty soon that it really wanted to be a book, and uh, kind of became uh, about things much broader um, than just the one case itself. So, 
you know, ultimately the argument in the book is that Apple uh, is not alone in, among antitrust cases in um, uh, posing a lot of uh, difficulty for the sort of um, broader public. It was uh, w- one of many cases throughout history that turned out to have uh, seemed to the public like uh, maybe uh, enforcement of vigorous competition wasn't the right idea or there was something special about the circumstances. Um, or whatever, but uh, uh, for one reason or another, found um, a lot of difficulty attracting popular support. And um, that was pretty interesting to me because I happen to think that our antitrust policy has been um, uh, pretty frequently, pretty consistently uh, disappointing. And I think more than anything, it has failed to live up to its its, uh, aspirations because it has had difficulty generating popular support. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, uh, there's something about the Apple case that is pretty illuminating about all of that. Um, because the arguments that people all across the ideological, uh, divide seem to be coming up with to argue that, um, the government shouldn't have brought the lawsuit that it did, um, they mostly boiled down to um, arguments in one way or another that that there was something special about this case, that um, however desirable competition might generally be, however desirable free markets um, might be, there was something about these circumstances that surely required uh, clemency from the ordinary um, uh, rules that govern other businesses. Um, But, the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like all of those arguments really were arguments I have heard before. Uh, and in fact, there, there are come from a relatively short list of arguments that, um, have been made in all kinds of antitrust cases in all kinds of industries all throughout the history of the law. Um, and in fact, it's, uh, the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like there's never been a defendant that didn't think its market was special and that it ought to be able to do things that nobody else gets to do. So in the end, you know, I mean, this one sort of easy case, a case that on its surface uh, is almost mundane, really, um, seemed to me to capture the biggest picture problems of all, the biggest uh, problems in the having of a competition policy. Um, And uh, that biggest problem is that even though we uh, generally say in America, we, we are said as Americans to believe in free markets more than like anybody in the whole world. Um, and most of us, uh, even in times like these, when some people have, uh, have uh, a lot of doubts about capitalism and this and that. And the other thing, I think that, that generally it can still be said that by and large, most of us are, are pretty okay with uh, private enterprise and think that uh, to a extent extent, competition is a good thing. Markets ought to be competitive. Um, and we kind of believe in uh, that as our, our way of life. And yet, uh, when individual cases um, pose the hard problem of forcing us to look at competition um, in its actual operation, we have a lot more trouble believing in that. So the bottom line for me in the book was, look, the problem with antitrust is even though we Americans believe 
uh, or profess to believe in free markets and private enterprise and the use of uh, competition to limit aggregations of private power, even though we talk a good game about that, the truth is we don't really believe in markets at all. And we don't believe in in, in them in a way that's actually uh, necessary for uh, uh, in an antitrust law like the one that we've got um, to work consistently uh, and durably. So that's the bottom line in the book. And I, I think it, it is all actually pretty well captured in uh, a careful case study of a case like like Apple. So can you talk a little bit about the relevant history up to this moment and why is it important? Yeah. Okay. So sure. So um, here we are in 2019. Uh, our antitrust law is, is an old law. Uh, it's one of the oldest federal statutes still in force. It's 130 years old nearly. Um, and it also has, for much of our history, has held a special place. I mean, a special political place. Antitrust, uh, less so now than it used to be, but antitrust has always gotten sort of a, a special political deference. I mean, it's, uh, it is um, among our laws. It's one that we all tend to uh, uh, claim is important. Uh, and yet, as I think most people now uh, sense, the law is uh, is in some trouble. It is uh, not enforced very vigorously. Uh, there's some uh, serious doubts, serious uh, disagreements about how it should be enforced, what its goals are, um, what it should be used for. Uh, and so by this latter day and during the, the time in which the Apple case was was unfolding, um, antitrust has become pretty, pretty moribund. So, uh, you know, the history by which we got to that point, um, it's been, t- this has all been talked about a lot in the last several years, um, because I mean, to, to my surprise, um, antitrust became, uh, a topic of pretty daily, pretty popular discussion in, uh, you know, the last five to 10 years. So we, we hear, you know, obviously now we hear every single day uh, that the government or private plaintiffs or somebody is going to break up the big tech firms. And we hear discussion every day about whether big tech is a problem and whether the antitrust laws are up to it and so on. So um, we, we hear about it a lot now. And we all, I think, are familiar with the, in, in loose terms, um, with the history by which the law has uh, uh, come to be underused, um, the, the short version of the story is that modern antitrust, in it, it, which was a vigorous and um, uh, pretty robust policy, uh, uh, found its origins um, sometime in the 1930s, sometimes uh around World War II and in the post-war years. Um, and it was vigorous and pretty effective for a while. Um, there were certain uh, uh, dissenters, though, who started questioning um, uh, whether it was doing the things it was supposed to do, what its goals really ought to be. Uh, starting, you know, uh, as the, the story is often told, um, this starts in the 1950s, um, mostly amongst economists and lawyers associated with the University of Chicago. Um, They grew in influence um, and they uh, argued various things, but they mostly argued that um, antitrust law, which up until that time could be characterized as having 
um, not been very rigorously economic. That is not driven necessarily by careful theoretical thought from an economic perspective about what the actual uh, impacts of various challenged actions might be. Uh, they said that that law ought to be reconsidered and we ought to be more careful and think about things more from an economic point of view. Um, they grew an in influence uh, and perhaps more importantly, even than the theoretical developments that they drove um, were certain political events um, of the early 1970s and above all uh, Richard Nixon uh, appointed kind of a large number of Supreme Court justices. Um, he appointed four, which historically is uh, uh, a lot, especially for a president who didn't serve two full terms. And it turned out that he appointed enough justices to switch the balance, to swing the, the balance of the court. So during the 1960s, which was kind of the, uh, the high point of extremely vigorous antitrust enforcement. The Supreme Court, uh, under a majority led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, had formulated a very strict antitrust policy in a variety of areas. Um, the Nixon appointees began systematically taking that apart, uh, uh, starting as early as about 1974 uh, in a series of decisions, uh, basically uh, reversed what the Warren court had had done for for better or worse, however you want to feel about it. There's not much uh, debating that the law changed radically starting in the mid 1970s. Um, and so what had been the most pro enforcement antitrust court in American history, uh, really within just a few years, turned into the most antitrust uh, anti enforcement antitrust court. Uh, and the low, you know, the lower courts, as they must do, they, they followed suit. So uh, it became harder and harder and more and more expensive to enforce the antitrust laws. Uh, and so it they came to be less and less enforced. And so uh, fast forwarding a little bit to the modern day, um, we now are in a situation in which um, antitrust is uh, not a lot of cases are filed. Um, and the cases that are filed tend to fall within certain very narrow ranges of uh, challengeable conduct, um, and they uh, much of the rest of the economy is left unaddressed by antitrust. So, really, only certain kinds of things can uh, be sued, uh, can be successfully challenged now, um, and a lot of the economy is largely um, unregulated by the law. Um, and so, we find ourselves um, in a point in history in which. Uh, the antitrust laws are largely ineffective and not much used, uh, and that is the the circumstances surrounding the Apple case. And so, you know, when when Apple first came out, um, it was a set of allegations of conduct that, um, uh, even under the laws that exist now, um, is uh, taken to be very serious and uh, easy to challenge. So uh, what was challenged in the case was that um, uh, the defendants were alleged to have uh, retail products to have done it horizontally. In other words, they set up a horizontal price fixing conspiracy. Um, and that's the kind of conduct that is easy to challenge even nowadays under our, our largely unused 
antitrust laws because again there are certain narrow categories of conduct that are still um, uh, that are still prosecuted. Uh, but the thing was, even that conduct, even the most obviously illegal conduct, the easiest to challenge under the antitrust laws, struck many many Americans as conduct uh, that. Uh, should have been left alone, that should uh, not be illegal, and that had a good explanation. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the the status quo as of uh, 2012 and the background for my work was that um, this this law has uh, failed far enough that even the most obviously legal conduct is uh, finding, uh, finding a lot of difficulty finding uh, popular support. And I wanted to understand why that was, how this seems to cyclically recur in the history of antitrust and why it uh, makes antitrust so difficult to enforce. So can you talk a bit about the history of the case and how it relates to your bigger themes? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the case itself. So um, uh, the case involved Apple uh, Apple Corporation, several publishing firms, and what we're alleged to have done was uh, fix the retail prices at which electronic books would be sold. So um, in 2007, um, by 2007, the publishing industry uh, was in economic difficulty. Um, I I came to learn in in, uh, researching the book, digging into the industry's history, that in fact, the publishing industry has... uh, has kind of always been on difficult uh, times or, or uh, felt at least or claimed that it was on hard times. Um, uh, but in any case, um, as of 2007, it did seem to be a fairly difficult period in the, the industry's history. Um, among other things, um, uh, the publishers had weathered uh, several, a, a couple of decades, basically a very difficult um uh, adversity with their own distributors and above all um, Borders and Barnes and Noble had come to be quite powerful and demanded extremely unfavorable wholesale terms from the publishers uh, before Bar- Borders and Barnes and Noble there had been Walden Books and um, B. Dalton Booksellers and other um, uh, you know fi- economically powerful chains so the publishers had struggled for a long time and by 2007 they were about um, uh, going on 15 years into their relationship with a new book distributor, which is uh, Amazon, obviously. And by then, Amazon had grown quite a lot in power and had flexed its muscles quite a lot against the publishers. Um, but the thing that happened then in 2007 was that Amazon did something the publishers uh, weren't really expecting and definitely weren't prepared for, and that was that Amazon um, created uh, the electronic books market by introducing the Kindle. Um, So uh, Amazon didn't invent electronic books. There had been electronic book reader products uh, before then, but none of them had ever been successful. Uh, And in fact, most of them had been miserable uh, commercial failures. Um, and the Kindle was not. The Kindle was a massive success, um, and it was successful uh, probably for a lot of reasons. Um, the reader was technologically superior to things that had come before it. Um, the 
Kindle also had a very large library of titles from the very beginning, which is something no reader had had before than that. Um, but probably more than anything, the real driver of the Kindle success was probably the radical pricing of the books that you could read on it. Um, as everybody uh, who was around then remembered, um, Amazon famously announced that it would sell books, including uh, new release books by the most popular authors at a very low price, uh, $9.99. And Amazon was going to release them on the same day as the hardcover release. In other words, the very first day the book is available, Amazon is going to sell um, an alternative product at $9.99, even though uh, the hard copy books themselves would be issued uh, typically in the mid-30s or more. Um, so this all caught the publishers uh, uh, by surprise. And that's an interesting story in itself. Amazon, you know, it's not that the publishers didn't know it was coming. Amazon had to negotiate for the, the electronic rights, obviously. It had to uh, get the product from the publishers um, and uh, negotiate the terms under which it would release them. But the publishers seemed to not have taken electronic books seriously. They, they had bigger fish to fry, and they weren't prepared for it. Um, and above all, they had no idea the price would be so low or that um, the book could be issued on the same day as the hardcover to release. So uh, the industry was, uh, was suddenly in a very deep quandary um, and uh, saw the circumstances in, in ex existential terms. I mean, the publishers, I think, fairly sincerely believed that if they couldn't control uh, low-price e-books, it would threaten their own, uh, their own uh, financial futures. Um, and that, uh, by the way, um, uh, it's useful to point out the reason why, the reason why low retail prices were so important to the, uh, the publishers. Um, oftentimes, uh, lawyers and economists will often say that, you know, um, low price retailers ought to actually be desirable to manufacturers most of the time. Like if a manufacturer can get a retailer to sell a product at a low price, that's good because uh, other things equal, you're going to sell more more units of the good. Uh, and that means more overall revenue to share between the retailer and the public and the, the manufacturer. So a lot of people ask me, why didn't the publishers love this? Uh, but the answer is very, very simple. Um, Ebooks, um, even when Amazon started expanding its market share really uh, significantly, or, uh, and uh, I guess what I should say is um, Amazon started selling more and more ebooks. They started growing this market really uh, significantly, so that ebook for a, um, a growing portion of all book sales. But e even when that was true, um, ebooks were still a minuscule part of book sales. And um, much more important to the publishers was the ability to sell those new release, best-selling hardcover books sold at a very high premium. They needed to sell the popular books at $35 uh, that they could um, sell exclusively as hardcovers for a window of some months. Um, and a lot of their profitability depended on that. So Amazon was a direct threat to that and a very serious threat. Um, and... Uh, Again, the publishers saw it in uh, life or death terms. So over the next um, couple of years, 
the publishers uh, engaged in um, a variety of uh, steps, a variety of uh, schemes to try to deal with the problem of Amazon. And above all, they started collaborating with, with one another quite a lot. So um, over the years between 2007 and about 2000, um, late 2009, um, the publishers started communicating a lot. And the, the Justice Department in its complaint um, really seemed to uh, savor pointing this out. And uh, in particular, the Justice Department loved dwelling on the fact that the uh, the executives of these big companies spent a lot of time meeting in very fancy restaurants in New York City um, in secret rooms. And uh, notably, they were doing it all um, with no lawyers present, none of the annoying general counsel staffers who might have told them that they shouldn't be talking about prices and uh, and uh, excluding competition. So um, uh, jumping ahead just a little bit after several attempts throughout uh, a period of a couple of years to try to get control of Amazon, to try to get it to raise prices, to try to put pressure on it uh, um, and do various other things. Um, the publishers uh, found that they uh, really um, weren't, weren't able to move the needle um, at all. Um, interestingly, they did a couple of things during that period of years um, <clears throat> that were never the subject of any legal challenge, like the Justice Department never uh, didn't file any claims against them for doing this. But they did a couple of things in those years that themselves were probably uh, like plainly illegal under the federal antitrust laws. So um, uh, one thing that they did was um, they attempted to window the release of ebooks, meaning that they they tried to collectively force Amazon to agree with them uh, not to release ebooks for a period of, of whatever, six months or something after um, the issuance of um, uh, a new release hardcover. Um, but doing that by horizontal agreement amongst them, which it, it appears they may have done, um, is so obviously illegal under antitrust laws that it's, it probably would be subject to uh, a rule that antitrust, call, antitrust lawyers call the rule of per se illegality, meaning that if you did the conduct, there's no defense. It's automatically illegal. Um, another thing they did that probably was per se illegal is uh, uh, interesting because it also kind of plays a role in the larger story. Um, when the publishers first negotiated ebook rights with Amazon, as I said, they, um, they uh, appear not to have anticipated that ebooks were going to be a big problem for them. And they, they didn't know that the Kindle was coming or the radical marketing uh, strategy was, was going to be used. Um, and so they gave away these rights pretty, pretty uh, loosely. Um, and among other things, uh, they all seem to have given Amazon uh, wholesale pricing terms um, that were quite desirable to Amazon. So um, <clears throat> by long-standing tradition in American bookselling, um, uh, publishers sold uh, hard copy books to their distributors um, at a wholesale discount, and the wholesale price was of um, 50% of the um, the list price uh, or the, the, the suggested retail price of the manufacturer, the anticipated retail price. 
Um, but the publishers gave Amazon a discount off that, um, uh, a further discount to reflect the fact that ebook, you know, electronic documents don't have the same production costs. It seemed only fair uh, um, to give Amazon a break because the prices were, um, uh, uh, the costs were lower. Um, and so, in other words, the wholesale price that Amazon started off with was actually roughly uh, similar, about the same as uh, the $9.99 price that Amazon initially sold its ebooks for. In other words, the wholesale price and the, the retail price that Amazon started with were um, was basically a break-even deal. Amazon got these books at about $9.99. Um, that's relevant to the later issues in the case because um, uh, um, one criticism of Amazon uh, and a criticism of the government's case against um, the Apple defendants was that Amazon itself must have been the real bad guy, the real anti-competitive bad guy in the story because, the critics said, uh, the defendants in Apple and their supporters all said, look, Amazon was selling um, at predatorily low prices. Um meaning that Amazon was selling it a lot. Well, it turns out Amazon uh, eventually was selling ebooks at a price, a retail price lower than it, the wholesale price at which it was paying for them. But only because after the Kindle was released, sometime after uh, Amazon started selling books at $9.99, which actually was uh, about a break-even price, about the same wholesale price that um uh, it was getting the ebook that the publishers all raised the wholesale price by doing away with that ebook discount that they had voluntarily given Amazon. So um, they they uh, pushed the price back up to the same wholesale price that they would have asked for the hard copy books. Um, and so the the wholesale price was something more like uh, twelve or fourteen dollars for most of these books, and Amazon was still selling them at nine ninety nine. And so it was true after a certain point that Amazon was selling. Um, ebooks at uh, a loss off the wholesale, um, and the publishers loved pointing this out and they said, "Look, Amazon obviously is an aggressive monopolist selling at predatorily low prices, um, and it's the real bad guy in the case." But um, that was only because the publishers raised the price. And the thing is, they seem to have done it uh, in collaboration with each other. In other words, they seem to have gotten together and said, "Hey, wait a minute, our our." wholesale discount that we're giving these, this company is killing us. It's uh, it's uh, screwing us on these low prices and let's all raise them. So in other words, it seems like there was a horizontal price fixing conspiracy even before the one the government challenged. Um, but anyway, how, however that may be, none of this stuff that the publishers did seemed to make a difference. None of it uh, could pressure Amazon into raising it, its retail prices. And by about late 2009, the publishers seem to be at kind of a loss. So lo and behold, unexpectedly out of the blue, um, <clears throat> they were approached by representatives of an entirely different industry uh, with something of a, a Hail Mary salvation uh, opportunity. And uh, the executives in question were um, representatives of the Apple Corporation. So um, it turns out that right about the same time, um, Apple was in the process, just, just as 
Amazon had created the market for electronic books where many had failed before. Apple was in the process in 2010, uh, uh, 2009 rather, of creating another market that many had tried to create and failed, and that was tablet computing. Uh, and as we all now know, the product that Apple released uh, um, <clears throat> eventually was the iPad to great success. Um, and the creators, the, the engineers and marketing people within Apple working on the iPad had been thinking for some time that uh, a great product to offer on the, on a tablet computer, a natural um, uh, add-on to a tablet would be the ability to read eBooks. Um, the, the Kindle by then was already a popular product and was widely used. And so it was, uh, it was a natural addition to the iPad to add books. Thing is, uh, and an interesting fact I think is that um, it appears that to Apple, um, ebooks were never actually that big a deal. Like uh, the iPad surely would have been produced; it would have been released, whether it had an ebook store or not, um, and it probably would ultimately have been used to read books purchased from from Apple because you could you could do that. I mean, it was technologically feasible. Uh, Amazon, uh, Apple didn't have to become an ebook retailer on its own, but it was on Apple's mind. And above all, Steve Jobs and other leaders within Apple were cognizant of the fact. They knew that the publishers um, were having a difficult time with Apple, um, and they knew that that was an opportunity. I'm sorry. They knew that the publishers were having a difficult time with Amazon, and they knew that that posed uh, an opportunity for them. That is, the publishers would work with Apple and give Apple perhaps uh, quite desirable terms, quite profitable terms under which to sell ebooks because they were so unhappy with Amazon. So in late 2009, Apple executives approached the publishers uh, un unsolicited and unexpected, and uh, they proposed to them the following deal. They said, we would love to distribute your books on our new tablet product in competition with Apple. And just like you, we also don't want to sell uh, these books at prices in competition with, um, with Amazon's current price because it wouldn't be profitable to us. So let us work together to get those prices up. And the publishers were very, very receptive. Um, so over the course of sort of a, a now legendary several weeks of breakneck negotiations, uh, Apple representatives worked with the then six publishers who dominated trade publishing in English, that is general interest publishing in English, and ultimately uh, convinced five of the six to agree to a set of agreements uh, that were ultimately what the government challenged in the Apple case. So um, the details of these agreements are kind of complicated and they got a lot of attention. Um, but what they boil down to is really pretty simple. Um, <clears throat> basically, each of the five publishers agreed uh, to a schedule of prices at which their ebooks would be sold on the iPad. Um, and Technically, that, that left the publishers with freedom to set their prices, but it was very clear that the price they would actually charge for these books would be the highest permissible price um, under the contract because the prices that were 
uh, even that highest permissible price was lower than what the publishers wanted to, wanted to charge. But much more important, uh, that, by the way, in and of itself is already legally suspect. Um, um, the publishers, as antitrust lawyers would say, the publishers are horizontal competitors. They're firms that are in head-to-head competition selling the same products to the same customers. And it's very clear that you cannot agree with your horizontal competitors at what your prices are going to be. Uh, and that's true even if you've actually only agreed to uh, some flexible schedule of prices that leaves you with freedom. You just can't do this. Um, and again, this is the kind of conduct that's so obviously illegal that we say that it is per se illegal. There's there's no defense. If the government can prove that you engaged in the conduct, it's, it's illegal. Um, uh, importantly, though, um, the parties didn't just agree to this flexible price schedule. Um, they also agreed that the publishers would sell their books at these prices um, on the iPad, but furthermore, that they wouldn't sell these books at any lower price on any other uh, through any other retailer. And at that time, the only other major retailer was Amazon. So in effect, they agreed that they would sell at certain prices on um, on the iPad and would sell at uh, prices no lower on Amazon. Um, this was a critical uh, agreement for them to reach. It was a critical com- component of their agreement because if any of them um, sold their price, you know, if, if they sold their books at a lower price <clears throat> on Amazon, no one would uh, no one would bother buying the books on the iPad. Uh, and moreover, they all had to agree to get their prices up on Amazon because if just one of them tried unilaterally, like imagine that, um, uh, you know, Simon and Schuster uh, agrees with uh, Apple that it will sell a book at a certain price of, let's say, $15 on the iPad, but it simultaneously uh, is uh, selling um, its books on Amazon and everybody else is selling uh, their books on Amazon at nine ninety nine. Well, Simon and Schuster could not go to Amazon and say, uh, "You have to raise your retail prices um, to fifteen dollars so that um, you're not undercutting my sales on the iPad." Uh, Amazon would just say, "Sorry, Charlie, go away," um, and people would buy. Uh, uh, you know, if Simon and Schuster, for example, decided, "Well, I'm just not going to distribute my books uh, through Amazon anymore." Um, then people just wouldn't buy Simon and Schuster uh, books anymore. So um, it's really fundamentally critical to understand that um, the the publishers all had to agree that they were going to work in unison and coordinate their conduct, and that uh, they all would confront Amazon with um, terms under which their books would be sold at the same prices that books were sold on the iPad. Um, okay, so again, that's all conduct that's very, very plainly illegal under the antitrust laws if it's coordinated amongst horizontal competitors. Um, a, a wrinkle in the case is that Apple was also sued as a defendant in this case. And, um, uh, you know, obviously enough, Apple is not in a horizontal relationship with those those publishers. Um, Apple is not a producer of books. It's not selling uh, books to um, uh 
other distributors in competition with um, the publishers. Um, instead, Apple is in a relationship with those publishers that antitrust lawyers and economists refer to as uh, vertical relationships. So uh, vertical relationships are generally not subject to per se rules. Uh, they're treated much more favorably under the law, and it's much harder to challenge them. So uh, a big bone of contention in the litigation that ultimately ensued was that um, was whether Apple should be treated under the same uh, rule of per se illegality as the um, the publishers. Um, and there was there was a fair bit of litigation about that, but it turns out. There's a special rule in antitrust that's designed just for this circumstance. And the rule is, if there's a horizontal conspiracy that would be subject to the per se rule, and somebody else who's not in a horizontal relationship uh, helps to coordinate that conspiracy, intervenes and tries to help the parties uh, agree horizontally, that person is subject to liability just as strict as uh, the... uh, the horizontal competitors. Uh, this is the so-called hub and spoke conspiracy rule. Um, and Apple's conduct was like tailor made to fit this rule. Um, okay. So, um, you know, when, uh, firms like these publishers, uh, go and confront Amazon and they each individually approach, uh, you know, appear at the Amazon offices in Seattle and say, uh, Hey, by the way, I'm going to raise all of my ebook prices on your platform by $15. Take it or leave it, Charlie. Um, and they each show up and they present the same terms over the course of a short period. It's pretty obvious to Amazon what has happened. Uh, that kind of thing doesn't just happen um, without some sort of agreement amongst the firms. And so Amazon complained to the federal authorities and uh, relatively quickly, uh, the Justice Department filed a lawsuit. Um, to make the long story of the litigation short, uh, it was litigated to a full uh, through a full trial on the merits um, in federal district court in New York, and the publishers actually settled before it even got to trial. Like their conduct was so obviously illegal that they didn't even bother um, to litigate, and they each agreed to terms under which they wound up uh, paying quite a lot of money. Uh, to private plaintiffs and agreeing to a bunch of uh, limitations on their conduct with the government. Um, Apple, though, stuck it out the whole the whole way to the very bitter end. Um, and that that's actually kind of an interesting question in itself, an interesting story. Like why Apple's conduct was also pretty plainly illegal, and it's it's a bit of a mystery why they stuck it out so long. Um, and I don't I don't really know the answer to that question, uh, but they did, and they litigated all the way through. Uh, the trial, they lost uh, really emphatically in a long uh, written opinion. The judge said that the evidence, uh, like a half a dozen times, the judge said the evidence against Apple was overwhelming um, and applied the per se rule and found it viable. Um, uh, Apple appealed, uh, lost before the Intermediate Court of Appeals. Uh, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case. Um, so ultimately, Apple lost um, roundly and, and comprehensively um, in separate uh, private litigation. Apple wound up agreeing to um, money damages settlement that um, ultimately amounted to about five hundred million dollars. Um, and Apple uh, paid damages uh, in litigation in, in other countries 
uh, in Canada and in Europe. And um, ultimately, uh, uh, the, the thing cost Apple many hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, okay, well, anyway, so, you know, that's the case. I mean, like I said, um, <clears throat> it wasn't the case itself that was really so interesting. It was the fact that um, it was the fact that uh, so many people saw it, found it so hard to uh, to believe in the case. Um, and, you know, there's so much we could say about that, but um, the real bottom line for so many people um, seems to have been, uh, I mean, for one thing, many people thought that uh, the real problem in the case was Amazon. Surely uh, Amazon is also a competitive threat. And uh, many people thought, you know, the real bad guy here um, is is the one guy that the government didn't sue and maybe worse yet, the government suing um, Apple and the publishers really just helped Amazon become an even bigger monopoly. Um, So that was a, that was a huge problem for a lot of people. Um, But lots of other defenses of the defendants came up, lots of other arguments for why there shouldn't be antitrust liability. Um, And in the end, um, what seemed to unite uh, a lot of criticism, uh, the, the, the many criticisms, uh, which again came from all across the political spectrum, they came from the left and the right. What seemed to unite uh, people was the sense that the real problem in the case um, was that price competition itself was too vigorous. Um, and that under the special circumstances of this case, the price competition that we ordinarily take as as you know, important and useful and sort of like the mechanism by which markets do their work. Um, under the special circumstances of this case, a lot of people thought you have to protect the, these defendants from it or else um, serious social losses will follow. Um, and so that, you know, that ultimately is what the book came to be about. After talking about um, the case and the issues it poses, I, I, try to address those big questions. Like are the, I I try to work through the specific arguments that are raised are the specific arguments that so many people made that um, the real problem in the case was price competition itself. Do they, do they persuade? Um, And, you know, my position in the book is um, first of all, these arguments aren't really very persuasive. Uh, some, some strike me as more persuasive than others, but none of them really seem like an especially good reason uh, to let a price-fixing cartel flourish uh, or to take the place of markets as our regulator. Um, and moreover, they, none of the arguments seemed like they were particularly special to the Apple case. Like nothing about this case really justified saying that price competition here is different somehow than it is in other circumstances. And we have to give, we have to let defendants um, shield themselves from it. Um, And that's, that's the book. So talk a little bit about antitrust and its discontents, particularly within your book, you write that markets in their ordinary operation are machines for producing pain. I quite like that quote. Why is this important? when we talk about antitrust. Yeah. So that, that's good. I mean, that, that really gets right to the heart of the, the tension that I was just talking about. Um, so, you know, the, the point of that observation is that we say 
uh, in America that we like markets or we at least uh, believe in markets enough to uh, tolerate them to do most of our regulatory work. Um, but uh, the, the reason that I don't think we're very good at actually following through with that idea and putting, putting our money where our mouth is, is that markets are actually pretty ugly machine, uh, you know, pretty ugly to watch in their ordinary operation. Um, they generate uh, business failures. They generate job losses. They generate lost investments. Um, it's, it's a nasty business to be in competition. Um, but it also does important work. Um, and, you know, ha- having an antitrust law um, really means, so, I mean, h- however you want to look at it, different, different people have different ideas about what antitrust should be. Um, but most ideas of a competition policy in one way or another boil down to um, having rules that are supposed to protect those markets and make them work um, because it's ultimately the markets that have to um, organize our economy. Um, so that the, the problem though is the problem that came up in Apple. So they're, they're ugly to watch. So a lot of, a lot of specific problems come up. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, come to be the basis of popular discontent, popular lack of support for competition policy. So, um, uh, just to take examples from the Apple case itself, you know, a common theme that the publishers raised, a common argument they made, and a common um, basis on which uh, the broader public supported the publishers was their belief that Amazon was going to put them out of business. They said, you know, these low prices are going to kill us. If we can't make more, uh, you know, if we're forced to lower our hardcover prices uh, as far as Amazon wants them to be, if we have to... um, uh, meet competition with products that are sold at nine ninety nine. We won't be able to cover our costs, and we'll go out of business. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know that that poses an obvious and immediate problem, an uh, obvious question um, about competition policy. If we're going to support this policy, does it mean we have to let businesses fail? And to a lot of people, you know, that can be a pretty sensitive question. I mean, to me, I think that. Uh, it's a question that's, um, you know, poses serious um, sympathetic regrets in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, if we're going to have, uh, you know, the most basic idea in our in our economic theory is that if a firm can't um, compete on a cost basis with other firms in the market, then it's supposed to fail. Uh, businesses, uh, less efficient businesses exiting is what's supposed to happen. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example. It's like a it's a poignant problem it's not what i mean to minimize and the losses are real but on the other hand we kind of have to have them if we're going to have markets at all and the alternative to not having uh markets do the work um i I think are more disappointing yet um so you know i mean that's the problem in a nutshell the uh the discontent the uh various arguments the various other arguments that uh, unrestrained price competition um, uh, is a problem. Um, they they get more sophisticated than that, um, and they they oftentimes get more uh, you know generate more sympathy than that, generate more serious concern than that. Um, but in the end, they all boil down to the same problem for me. 
um, which is that markets actually do important things and they do them better than other alternatives that we've got. Um, and it's better for us to let them do, um, do what they can than to try to avoid the, the problems that they generate. So talk a little bit about industries claiming that they're part of special markets and why that matters or not. And are there any markets that need the special treatment that they ask for? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, so like I said, it, uh, all kinds of industries have made arguments like this throughout the whole history of the law, um, uh, some, some more plausibly than others. Um, but, you know, from the very beginning of the law, there were firms arguing that something about their products or something about their particular markets required that they have some kind of protection from, from vigorous competition. Uh, one of the most famous examples uh, of that from a very important case early in the law, it was uh, uh, litigated in the late 1890s, um, was a case that involved cast iron sewer pipes. Uh, the, the firms in that market uh, in that case said, look, the, the nature of our technology courts is special and we can't produce these products under vigorous competition. So, um, you know, from the very beginning and amongst firms in extremely mundane markets, we've seen all across the economy people saying that their markets um, have to be protected from competition or they can't they can't survive. Um, so, you know, I mean, are there any markets now that make a plausible um, a plausible claim that they need some kind of special protection. And, and my answer is not really. I mean, I, I've spent much of my career studying this particular issue, studying the special rules that govern uh, markets with products that seem special. Um, and very rarely can you find solid economic evidence that um, some particular technology or the, the circumstances of some particular um, market mean that the product can't be produced under competition. Um, plausible candidates might include electricity, which turns out to be a very weird product in a lot of ways. Um, insurance has certain economic uh, weirdnesses. Um, but generally speaking, no. I mean, uh, fairly often firms have, uh, you know, all kinds of firms have made this argument. Sometimes firms are able to persuade uh, the courts or sometimes Congress that they should get some sort of special clemency. Um, but what almost always happens the the few dozen times that this has been done throughout antitrust history, what almost always happens is that the firms that complained, they needed some protection for competition when they get it, when they get like some statutory antitrust exemption or something, um, they don't do any better without, with, without exposure to antitrust. And oftentimes they do worse. And, so there's usually no real benefit from it and some serious harm. So in the end, it seems like competition is kind of the best we have to hope for. So what about the impacts of the digital transition? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question, too. I mean, that goes to the uh, problem of, of uh, whether any markets are special. Um, the digital transition was a big deal. Uh, I suppose it definitely was um, a big deal in, a, in the local sense that for individual firms that had been producing with pre-digital technology, um, the transition to digital distribution of things was was economically painful. Um, <clears throat> in the end, I mean, I think uh, technological change, um, technological transition 
it, it gets a lot of attention. And, in, you know, especially in the last 10 or 20 years, we've talked a lot about disruptive technology and disruptive entry and so on and the, the magical properties that it's supposed to have. Um, but really, uh, technological innovation, any other kind of innovation, they're really just aspects of competition. I mean, the, the chief feature of a technological innovation that, that causes disruption is just that it allows um, some firms to sell a product more cheaply or at higher quality, and that, that's literally just price competition. Um, so I don't think there's anything actually all that special about it. Um, and, you know, uh, again, a, a major theme in the Apple case was, was precisely this, that there must be something special about um, technological innovation um, and the, the threat it poses to settled interests and cultural values and so on um, that says that we have to have protection from unbridled competition in a case like um, the Apple case. But in the end, it just it just um, really did not persuade at all. Um, I think that markets will adjust and they'll adjust in ways um, that will be on the whole beneficial to society. Um, and so what happens when there's uh, low price, lower price or or better quality competition because of a technological uh, innovation like digital distribution is exactly what's supposed to happen. And the last thing we should do is try to control it with um, a horizontal price fixing conspiracy. So you seem to want to preserve current antitrust, at least in general terms. But are there any ways that you think it should be reformed or changed? Well, definitely. Um, I mean, I don't think that anything about current circumstances um, require us to amend the law or, or change antitrust in any very significant paradigmatic kind of way. Um, what we do actually need to do though, is just enforce the laws we've got. Um, and, and above all, uh, a couple of aspects of our antitrust law are essentially unenforced right now, which is our, our merger law. We let way too many big mergers go through. Um, and we have essentially no monopolization law. Um, we don't, um, sue big companies who are dangerous just for their own unilateral actions. So talking about monopolization, let's talk about Amazon as monopoly, the case and why that matters, and about public opinion in general when it comes to a monopolization rule that could apply to Amazon or another similarly situated large company. Yeah, no, this is good. Um, uh, So, you know, it's very interesting because a lot of people think the whole problem uh, with with, or the biggest problem anyway with our antitrust as it currently exists is that um, it's not well designed to handle firms like Amazon. It's not, it can't handle um, new economy firms. Um, and in particular, our monopolization law isn't, uh, isn't up to the task of dealing with the great big, uh, big tech firms that we've got right now. So um, just, just as a little background observation, antitrust, uh, American antitrust basically makes three different things illegal. Um, it's illegal to conspire with your competitors in ways that limit competition. It's also illegal to engage in unilateral conduct or monopolization um, in ways that inter- injure competition if you're a big enough firm. So if you're a big firm and you take unilateral action that excludes competitors, that can violate the law and that's called monopolization. Um, and then it's also illegal to engage in mergers or acquisitions that give you 
monopoly power. So that monopolization piece um, is definitely a problem. It's definitely a sore spot in our existing law. It's very difficult to enforce the rule that we've got. Um, and above all, the courts require, um, American courts anyway, uh, require a plaintiff to prove um, that a firm has an extraordinarily large amount of market power before we can challenge it for its unilateral conduct. Um, it, uh, and that that's largely what makes it so difficult. So basically, um, with a firm like Amazon, to challenge it under a monopolization theory, you're going to have to show that it has um, probably like 80 to 90 percent of some particular market. And, um, you know, a surprising fact that I think a lot of people don't know is that um, in, a, in really none of Amazon's markets, as markets um, are traditionally conceived, does it have anything like that kind of market share. So um, it is definitely a very big firm. Um, and it uh, does have big market shares in a fair number of markets. Um, but for example, we think of Amazon as a, as a retail monopolist. Like it must be a it must be this hundred pound gorilla in all retail. But it turns out that in retail overall, Amazon only has about five percent. Um, and even in online retail, uh, where Amazon definitely is is by far the biggest player, it only has about fifty percent. So um, a big problem in suing Amazon is going to be figuring out um, where it is that Amazon has the kind of market power that can support a monopolization claim. Um, I think, the, uh, but you know, this is, this is a nice example, I think of uh, why I believe we can address the problems we've got with the law that we've got. So um, it just, it just calls for a little creativity and a little in, increased uh, judicial willingness to actually enforce the law. So what I have in mind with Amazon is, well, there are, there are ways we can creatively understand Amazon's market power. Um, we, ha we have to ask, what is the thing that makes Amazon um, the, the must-have distributor? Like, why is it that uh, suppliers of retail goods uh, seem to find that they can't say no to Amazon and they have to agree to whatever terms that it wants. Um, and if we can figure out why that is, maybe then we can define some relevant market in which Amazon really does have monopoly power. And I think the answer is that Amazon is the must have firm, um, because the must have distributor, because, uh, it can do things that no other distributors can do. It can get products to consumers in their homes, uh, a day or two after they purchase them. So, um, you know, uh, if if there is a market for next day in-home delivery, uh, I have a feeling that, you know, and if we can convince a court to define a relevant market that way, um, I have a feeling that Amazon is going to be found to have an extraordinarily large share of that market. Um, and if you can show that Amazon did things that were exclusionary um, in a way that's illegal to get that great big market share in next home uh, next day home delivery or, so, or or something like that, then there's maybe a viable monopolization case. Um, a, a point of this discussion, though, something to keep in mind is that's all really very different than, um, uh, you know, what I've just described as a viable am, a monopolization theory against Amazon. 
is very different than what Amazon was alleged to have done in the ebooks case. Um, I, I kind of hate to talk about this kind of thing in this way because I come off sounding like Robert Bork or something. Um, but the truth is that Amazon did stuff in the ebooks case that to many people looked like monopolization, looked like um, anti-competitive, overly vigorous predatory conduct meant to kill off um, competitors with the goal of getting a monopoly um, that I don't think were anti-competitive at all. In fact, I think they were the soul of competition. They were exactly what we want firms to do. Um, and the social benefits are large. Specifically, Amazon took electronic books. It sold them at, at as I said uh, earlier in this conversation, it, its prices, even though they were radically low, they were basically break even low. Amazon wasn't selling at a loss to get a monopoly. Um, and, uh, it gave people these sort of magically new technologically innovative products that nobody had ever had before at extraordinarily low prices. Um, and despite all the arguments that came up in the case, the, the arguments for dangers to the publishers and dangers to authors and dangers to literature itself and the, the end of the paper book and so on, it seems to me are, um, hugely outweighed by the benefits of what, um, Amazon brought to people. Um, so I guess the point of that is, do I think Amazon could be the subject of a monopolization challenge? Do I think it's a problem? Um, emphatically, yes, I do think that Amazon is a serious problem. It's a dangerous firm that poses a lot of threats to society and it has to be taken seriously. Um, but we can't, we can't, and we shouldn't just say, that it seems real big and we ought to break it up or it seems real big and we ought to keep it from uh, doing what it does. I think instead we have to think carefully about the ways that it actually hurts people or could and sue it for those things. Can you talk a little bit about anti-bigness rules and potential solutions to our current antitrust problems and a little bit about no-fault monopolization rules? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, a little bit in at odds with something I just said is, you know, an alternative is we could have anti-bigness rules. We, we've essentially never had those in the United States. In other words, we've never had a law that said uh, firms can only get so big or that once a firm gets to a certain size, the government will break it up. That's what we might refer to as um, a no-fault de uh, a no-fault monopolization rule or something like that, uh, a, an affirmative deconcentration rule. Um, we've essentially never had them. So uh, some people are calling for those things right now. The sort of the of the most left progressive wing of antitrust um, activism right now definitely uh, favors uh, no-fault um, corporate breakup rules. Um, and what's a little bit at odds with what I, I said earlier is, um, I actually think that would be okay. I think if we could have, uh, a no fault monopolization rule, um, it might be just fine. Um, the, the truth is, um, there's no very good ec economic argument, um, in, in theory or with any, uh, empirical basis that firms have to be very large, um, in order to operate efficiently. So, um, in, in many circumstances, if we're just breaking up a firm into smaller pieces, um, that's, that's probably actually desirable. Um, and, and so it, it would be okay. Um, the problem, you know, is it's, it's laughably implausible as a political matter that we're going to have any 
law like that in in the foreseeable future. Um, the United States is not going to adopt a no-fault monopoly rule. Um, we did actually come close to adopting rules like that uh, in the late 1960s, the early 70s. But, you know, that's 50 years ago and the world's changed a lot and we're just not going to be able to pull this off. A major point you make in the book is that discontent with antitrust and with the idea of markets as regulators animates critics on both the left and the right. So can you talk a little bit specifically about Lester Tester's free writing argument and how that affected economic thinking? Yeah. So this is like one of my favorite part, parts of the books, one of my favorite insights and the most important thing to me in the book. Um, it is true that the same arguments, uh, it seems to me, the same arguments or, or, or implicitly similar seeming arguments about the Apple case seem to keep coming from both the left and the right. And in fact, um, the left and the right were both awfully concerned with Amazon, with the problem of Amazon. Um, and in fact, there, there were some fairly surprising moments in the history of the case um, in which people who never, ever talk like this were talking about Amazon uh, as if um, the real problem in the world was corporate bigness and uh, uh, giant firms that can charge very low prices. Um, I heard those arguments um, from the usual suspects. I mean, I heard it from very left-leaning um, progressive activists, um, and I expect to hear that from them. But I also heard it from like big law defense lawyers, the kind of people who usually say um, the the bigness of a firm is irrelevant. No firm should ever be broken up just because it's so big. Um, and low prices are the, the best thing ever. Um, so it was amazing to me that, um, that, uh, very conservative seeming people were saying that the real problem in the case was Amazon. And more generally, um, I heard, uh, similar kinds of arguments from, from the left and the right across the spectrum. And the bottom line for me is it seemed like all these arguments really, um, were in one way or another tied to the idea that sometimes vigorous competition itself and specifically vigorous price competition, um, is the real enemy. Um, and, um, it dawned on me in writing this book, just how often that argument is made by people who are very conservative. Um, and so that leads, you know, to the ultimate conclusion of my book, which is the real problem and the real difficulty enforcing antitrust law, um, is that people just don't really believe in markets. We all in America, uh, generally speaking, claim to, um, but we really don't. Um, okay. So the relevance of Lester Telser, uh, to this, um, this is a little bit in the weeds, but it's, it was a, a useful example in the book because it's a nice example of how often, um, very conservative, uh, critics, very conservative, um, perspectives, arguments from the kind of people that we usually think of as free market zealots, like people who believe that markets are, are extraordinarily, uh, powerful and self-regulatory. Um, it was a nice example of how often, um, when it suits them politically, uh, they too are willing to say that in fact, markets are, are susceptible to failures of various kinds. And ultimately that, uh, markets can fail because vigorous price competition itself is the bad guy. So tells, uh, is a, a economist associated with the university of Chicago. Um, and he's famous for a few things, but probably his, his biggest contribution, um, was an argument 
about a certain kind of distribution policy. So um, uh, a problem comes up in the antitrust sometimes when a manufacturer tries to control the prices at which its own retailers will resell the manufacturer's goods. So um, if, uh, if uh, you know, you can imagine a, an auto manufacturer uh, setting prices um, by uh, uh, resale prices with its, its, um, its uh, car lot distributors. Um, under antitrust law, at least in principle, that can be illegal. So um, that's a vertical relationship. As I said before, if a manufacturer reaches an agreement with its own distributors, that's not in a horizontal relationship, it's vertical. Um, And generally speaking, vertical relationships are are harder to challenge under the law. But the law has always said that vertical agreements can be illegal. And in particular, when manufacturers uh, fix resale prices with their retailers through contract, that vertical agreement um, at some points in our history was treated as um, fairly suspect. And for a while it was uh, those kind of agreements were flatly illegal. So, so uh, Telser made a contribution though, um, uh, uh, which was an argument for um, why those kinds of agreements might actually be desirable. Like why antitrust um, ought to tolerate those things, why they might be socially desirable. Um, and his argument was an economic argument. And I, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but basically he explained that, um, sometimes manufacturers might want their retailers to charge higher retail prices. Um, okay. And again, you know, I don't want to get, uh, too complicated here, but generally speaking, you would expect manufacturers to like retailers to set lower retail prices. The lower the retail prices are, uh, other things being equal, the more units will be sold and the manufacturer wants to sell more units um, and make more revenue. So uh, it's kind of curious that you nevertheless see manufacturers sometimes agreeing to um, re, uh, you know, retail price agreements with their distributors. And Telser came up with this argument for why they might want to do that. And basically his argument was um, sometimes manufacturers want uh, retailers to actually um, invest their own money, invest substantial amounts of their own money in marketing the product. So uh, the manufacturer might want retailers to have like fancy showrooms and well-educated sales staff who have lots of time to spend with customers and stuff. And all that's very expensive. And Telser said, you know, um, if any retailer can set any retail price they want, that could pose a real problem because if one retailer is investing in all the fancy marketing uh, pizzazz, but other retailers can sell the same products at discount prices, well, uh, maybe customers will go to the fancy retailer, eat up all of their sales staff's time and resources, um, but then not buy the product there and go buy it at the discount retailer once they've learned about it and realized that they want to buy the product. So that's the argument for free riding. The, um, the discount retailer might take a free ride on the investments made by the higher, higher quality, uh, retailer. And so it could be bad for society if, uh, you know, price competition has the result of causing the higher cost retailers, uh, not to make those investments anymore because maybe consumers benefit from having the, the higher caliber marketing efforts. 
Um, okay. So that's all kind of complicated and in, in the weeds and stuff, but it had a, a really nice key relevance for my book because Telser is at the leading, you know, he was a leader amongst the very conservative economists and lawyers that we think of as the Chicago school of economics, the Chicago school of antitrust law. And he was among the leaders who led that revolution in the mid 1970s that has resulted in antitrust largely, uh, being dead. Um, and so it's, this is all, excuse me, fairly ironic because that group, the Chicago school are notoriously the most zealous, uh, free market advocates there are. And generally speaking, their argument that we don't need antitrust and we don't need government intervention (coughs) is that markets themselves are so powerfully regulatory that they don't need the assistance of antitrust law. But it seems to me that when it's useful, that is, when it makes a nice argument that the government should let private people restrain their markets, conservative economists are more than happy to argue that markets in that case are unable to give consumers what they want under the <coughs> excuse me under the pressure of vigorous price competition and that's exactly what happened with the with the free riding argument um the argument is that if retailers engage in vigorous price competition then the higher caliber retailers won't be able to offer um uh you know innovative or expensive marketing uh, and informational services, even if consumers want them. So that, that kind of flies right in the face of believing that markets, uh, themselves are, uh, self-regulatory or, or, um, robust or whatever the kind of arguments that, uh, conservative economists generally, uh, take to very strongly. And the ultimate point, um, in observing that was just the, the same as the ultimate point of the book, which was, When push comes to shove, however much we say that we believe in markets, people don't actually believe in markets very much at all. And in particular, when we see individual cases of markets in operation, and in particular, when the government is asked to intervene to with the antitrust laws to ensure that those markets stay vigorous, um, that's when we see people all across the political spectrum coming up with reasons that, in fact, price competition itself is the whole problem. And we can't have faith that these markets can protect values that we care about uh, without some kind of interference. And that's the, that's kind of the end point of the book. I mean, uh, it's very hard to find some coalition of broad consensus that says, sure, we can believe that markets are actually the right thing to do in this circumstance. And that's why ultimately I think that antitrust has, uh, has largely been ineffective. So let's talk about another Chicago school thinker, uh, Ronald Coase, who talked about an assertion about the preoccupation with the monopoly problem. Yeah. How does that relate to this issue? Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite quotes in history. Uh, so <laughs> Coase, you know, he, uh, he, was, uh, he was a wit, I think. He was very witty, and he, uh, he was good at coming up with uh, sassy put downs. And in that quote, he was, uh, uh, taking to task the other economists of his day. Um, it's kind of hard to remember it this way now because economics seems like it's mostly a conservative force, I think to most people now, 
But in the mid 20th century, many economists were actually uh, strongly in favor of really vigorous antitrust enforcement, and they believed that monopoly was prevalent and was a real problem. And uh, Coke Coast did not agree. Uh, And in that famous quote, he said uh, uh, that economists, I'm paraphrasing, but economists of his day uh, were so preoccupied with the monopoly problem that whenever they found some practice, some circumstances in a market that they didn't understand, they reached for a monopoly solution. And he says, since we are so ignorant in so many areas and there are so many ununderstandable problems, monopoly solutions are very prevalent. Um, so he was making fun of those people. Obviously he was saying that because you're ignorant, you're jumping to your own political biases. Um, the point of that, of pointing that out for me in the book is, um, that I think the shoe is now completely on the other foot. Like we've, we flipped that completely 180 degrees. Um, and so now, um, most, uh, economists and most, uh, you know, most antitrust observers and surely most of the federal judiciary, um, are so sure that monopoly can't happen, that monopoly is not a problem that they will bend over backwards looking for, any explanation, no matter how convoluted or complex or tortuous, uh, to show, to show that, um, you know, some challenged conduct in an antitrust case, uh, to show that it's harmless, uh, that they will, they will do that even when the most obvious explanation is that, yeah, these guys are just, uh, these guys are just conspiring against the public interest. They're, they're engaged in a competitive conduct. Um, and that was, that was the case in Apple. I mean, Apple was an easy case. Like I said, uh, it's a horizontal price fix conspiracy coordinated by a distributor, Apple, that had a clear interest in, um, raising prices across the board for no plausible reason, except to make more money for its shareholders. And yet very smart lawyers and economists, uh, from all over the, the spectrum, went way out of their way coming up with really complicated arguments for why uh, this was in fact somehow beneficial when, uh, and it, it just plainly was not. Let's finally talk about uh, something that's a little further in the past, the 19th century Methodenstreit, or for German-speaking countries, Methodenstreit, the <laughs> national economy. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, I probably say it wrong. But uh, you said it better than I do. So that was the that was the classic conflict um, in European economics of the mid nineteenth century. Um, so, and th- this figures in the book. I mean, like I said, I started off with this one narrow case, and the book got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I I dig way into a lot of historical background. Um, and the the conflict of the nineteenth century amongst economists was was very interesting because. Um, it's, it really goes to the heart of the Apple case it, itself and the tensions that I, I saw in it. And ultimately, the, the conflict between the differing perspectives in that case, um, the, the differing perspectives were uh, economists in Germany who in, in the 19th century German universities were um, really dominant. They were, they were the leading universities in the world. And German economists were, were leaders um, worldwide. Um, but the dominant view in Germany um, was very different than the dominant view in England and America. Uh, economists in England, in particular, looked at the world quite differently. Eng- England at the time was 
was um, sort of the other dominant force in economic theory. Um, and the basic difference between them, the difference between English economists and German economists was um, uh, basically a problem of generalization. Um, the, the tension was over how useful it might be to generalize, um, to try to come up with theoretical generalizations that abstracted away from the detail of, of um, specific worldly cases. Um, so the Germans, um, the, the dominant school in Germany was known as the historical school of economic thought. And the German historical school, uh, believed that you couldn't look at economic problems without understanding the whole history and the context of whatever industry, um, you were looking at. And the English obviously were a very, were, they were a different animal entirely. Um, they thought the whole point of, theoretical speculation ought to be to come up with the the broadest generalizations that you could safely make. Like, um, it, you, you purchase explanatory power by, um, abstracting away from details. So, um, that tension is a, is a big tension in, uh, that still exists. Um, and it is reflected very, very, uh, powerfully in, um, not just the economics of antitrust law, but in antitrust law itself, because, just, just like in, um, you know, in that old conflict, a big question is, well, how, how general can we make our rules? Like how generally applicable, applicable can we make antitrust rules without allowing people to have exceptions or exemptions for purportedly special circumstances? Um, and that's the tension of my book. And I say, uh, I think actually we can, we can safely generalize pretty far. We don't really, uh, benefit that much from coming up with antitrust clemencies every time we think that there might be something special about a market. And I, and I say that basically because I think that the things that seem special are not so much, uh, uh, features of individual markets that make them different than other ones. The things that seem special in any particular market, when we look at the effects of competition there, are really just the ordinary incidents of competition causing pain. So, um, if competition causes, uh, business failures or job losses or lost investments or, or whatever, um, it may seem like there has to be something special about that market, but the odds are it's just competition doing what it does. For the German listeners of the podcast, I would like to apologize ahead of time in case I mispronounce Methudenstreit. Yeah. I would I, like to I'm, note that I'm German much, <laughs> is not my first language. Well, I'm much wiser than you, Luce. I didn't try to say it because I knew I would. Uh, I'd like to note any any uh, mispronunciation is solely my fault. I would like to, however, right. defend myself by saying that German is my seventh language. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Uh, let's talk about retail price management, what it is and how it applies to the case. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, really we, we've kind of already talked about it. Um, resale price maintenance is just the agreement amongst the, uh, between a manufacturer and its retailer to set, um, retail prices. Uh, it used to be illegal, uh, pretty broadly. Now it's pretty broadly legal. It was relevant to the case. Um, and by, you know, by the way, this is what Lester Telser was talking about. So this the whole economics that uh, Telser generated uh, of free riding was all an argument about why resale price maintenance might be actually a, a good thing. Um, the reason it was relevant to the case was 
there's a there's a law a long history of law and politics surrounding resale price maintenance in antitrust um in which the courts have come to believe that resale price man maintenance ought to be broadly uh tolerated that in fact it's probably a good thing it's uh uh and so it's it's taken as like a really big victory of conservative antitrust um agitation to have persuaded the courts that all of that is true and uh having convinced them to make resale price maintenance largely uh legal um that was relevant to the apple case because nowadays that that agitation that history of agitation in favor of vertical restraints and resale price maintenance was so successful that nowadays every antitrust defendant that can plausibly characterize itself as being in a vertical relationship uh, makes a big point of saying, Hey, we're just like those RPM defendants of the seventies and eighties that you, the courts said were actually doing society a favor. Um, so that played a big role in Apple. Um, the Apple company said, Hey, look, we're, we're not involved in a horizontal conspiracy. We're just horizontal. Uh, we're just vertical distributors and all the restraints we adopted were, were for the benefit of society. Um, and that found a lot of supporters amongst, amongst, uh, conservatives, um, didn't persuade the courts. And in fact, I think it's, it was kind of a crock. Um, can you talk a little bit about the history of the book market and book cartels? Um, yeah, sure. So, um, an interesting thing was, um, you know, uh, um, the Apple people, the Apple defendants, um, and the supporters they found, um, talked a lot about how the, uh, the case was new or the case was special. And that was a big part of the argument that it ought to, uh, it ought to be the, you know, the defendants ought to get some sort of special clemency. Um, but it turns out that there's actually quite a history of cartels and, um, vertical price maintenance in, uh, books, uh, publishers, you know, something I said earlier was, um, publishers have actually been complaining about their economic problems for a really long time. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a famous story. I believe uh, the journalist Ken Oletta told this story. Um, a published, uh, uh, editor at one publishing house told him that at their, at their company, they joked that the second book published on the Gutenberg printing press was a story about the death of the publishing industry. Um, so they've been complaining about this forever. Um, and one thing they've been doing forever to try to protect themselves from the problems they perceive is they've been fixing prices with their, their retail distributors. So publishers and booksellers have been engaged in price cartels for about 200 years, as it turns out. Um, and in fact, uh, a, a conspiracy really just like, um, the one in the Apple case was actually adopted in England, um, around the turn of the 20th century. And it was enforced for almost a century. So, um, just one more big piece of evidence that, um, first of all, the, the financial distress the publishers faced around 2007 weren't, wasn't actually new. Uh, and second that, uh, the, the Apple conspiracy itself wasn't, wasn't some sort uh, special new circumstance, uh, needed to deal with technological disruption or anything else. So do you have any final thoughts wrapping all of this together? Yeah. I mean, um, that was a lot of territory. We talked forever. Um, 
And uh, we talked about a lot of different things. But I, I mean, the bottom line for me is um, the the book is all about the, the tension between the general and the specific um, and the, the need that I think we have as a society to um, avoid the temptation to believe that particular cases, specific cases um, are somehow special uh, and that we really can treat um, our vision of competition as generally applicable. So as a final question, what would you like your fellow scholars, listeners of this podcast and policymakers to take away from your comments and your book in general? Uh, well, I don't know. A lot of things, I guess. I mean, I hope it's a good read. Um, I hope um, above all though, um, that people, um, I mean, the, the, the deepest contribution I want to make, the deepest theoretical insight that I think in, is in the book is just how broadly um, held is this suspicion or fear of price competition itself um, and how generalized it is all across the ideological spectrum. Um, I think that if we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how much I even believe this is really um, something to hope for, but um, if we could generally overcome that problem and just believe that markets, even as ugly as they are, really are the best choice in most circumstances, uh, we could finally have an antitrust law that actually works. All right. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for coming on the podcast to talk about your excellent book, United States v. Apple, Competition in America, available at online and at a uh, academic bookstore near you and apparently on these e- as an ebook as well oh yeah which is fitting yes it is all right <laughs> thanks so much Liz. good night Decided to fight right to the end But if I ever get my money